All right, so um, oftentimes uh, in a sermon, there's like kind of that one line, you know, like this is what the whole sermon's about. Um, I have that today, so good news. Uh, we actually have something to go back to and know what I'm actually trying to talk about. Um, but oftentimes a pastor will do that or a preacher will do that, and it'll be kind of in the form of a command, uh, a command that's, uh, you know, uh, go and do this thing, which is good. Uh, sometimes it'll be a nice uh, suggestion. Hey, this would be a pretty awesome way in which we could maybe do things. Uh, other times it'd be maybe just a, a simple observation. That's more of kind of a teaching outline. Here's an observation, how, it under, how we understand God. Um, today, uh, ours is uh, trust in God's leading love. And, and, and honestly, when I, when I wrote this and I'm thinking of this, like my, my motive behind it can't really be felt in the words there, so I, this is why I'm explaining it, is that it's not really a command, like trust, you know, there. It's, it's really a plea. It's really a plea that, that we trust. I'm, I'm begging you, please trust in God's leading love. I think the book of Ruth is a, a magnificent um, uh, ancient Near Eastern piece of literature that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to really draw out the whole journey of our faith as Christians. Uh, this, this, uh, this chapter here, Ruth 3, is going to invite us into this trusting. We're going to see how Naomi trusts. We're going to see how Ruth trusts, and we're going to see how Boaz trusts. Now, what we see from these characters in this story is not that they are exemplary, like they're the ones we should be exactly like Ruth or exactly like Naomi. They are avenues that give us glimpses of how we connect to and understand God's said love, his, his steadfast, loyal love that's never ending. Uh, and so these characters have, have leaned into this leading love and now in chapter 3, we're going to see them go through a pretty scandalous situation, a pretty, a pretty mysterious narrative, a pretty, uh, a pretty uh, uh, uncomfortable journey in discerning God's love. And I invite you into that because when we're in the face of uncomfortable situations, when we're in the face of work and labor, and when, we're, when we've been trotting through life and we just don't see the burden lifting, it's easy to not trust in the loyal love of God. And so that's my plea to us today uh, for you and for always is that we continue to trust in God's loyal love. And today in Ruth, we're going to see one aspect of that is his leading love through which he leads us. So I know we've been standing up and sitting down. I'm actually going to ask you all to stand back up out of reverence for God and his word. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14 today. 1 through 14, we'll work through the whole text, but right now I'll only do those, those verses. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that you, it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. He turned, over, uh, he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. 
I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now uh, it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remember, uh, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose before, uh, before one could recognize her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Trust in God's leading love. There's a lot of talk here of, uh, of the Redeemer. Um, there's a lot of talk of uh, a Redeemer that's closer. Uh, and in chapter 4, we're going to get uh, to meet this Redeemer who is closer. And we're going to go through the legal process of redemption. So redeeming is huge. We haven't had that up to this point. Uh, we've heard, you know, we've kind of set the stage for it, but we've not really hit it hard. So right now we are hitting it hard. And I want to give, before we even jump into the scenes of this, of this narrative, just kind of a, a thought of what is a redeemer. We don't have that in our culture right now. We don't have that in our legal system right now. So very painful, concise summary is going to just say, uh, go to Leviticus 25 and read that. This is, what, uh, this is where it's at. Leviticus 25 is laying out everything that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are thinking. They're following these... These laws, the thinking this way, Leviticus 25 uh, is there. So what does Leviticus 25 give us, uh, kind of in my own summary? Uh, it says that people need redeemed. Uh, somehow that there is a, a loss of, of property, of status, of, of rights, of, of whatever it might be. Um, and so land needs to be redeemed. Slaves need redeeming. And sometimes uh, a relative would need redeemed. Now, there are many ways that you can need this redemption. Uh, you kind of fall out of uh, uh, someone dies and you lose your status within the society. That's what's happening to Ruth and Naomi here. Uh, but then someone has to come back. This person that comes back, this relative that comes back is a redeemer. Who is a redeemer? I'm just going to quote uh, from, uh, from some scholars who summarize it very concisely. A redeemer is a close male relative from the same clan. The closer the familial connection, the greater the obligation to redeem on behalf of the family member. In short, whoever can redeem a relative should do it with a greater responsibility falling on the near kin. Of these circumstances, property, slavery, and, uh, and with relatives, uh, then they say, a kinsman redeemer intervenes on behalf of another who is not only in need but unable to redeem himself. That's a lot of words there. A redeemer intervenes on behalf of another who is not only in need, so someone needs to be there. Uh, they, they are in need but they cannot get out of their situation themselves. We touched on this, that Boaz has already been doing this with Ruth. Uh, when he says, come to my table, he's already working her status so that he's redeeming and bringing her to a status that she could not get otherwise. We're going to see him move this direction even more so. And uh, spoiler alert, next week, we're going to talk about Christ being that redeemer for us. He does foreshadow Christ. He's not an exact one-to-one, but Boaz is a great example of what a redeemer is in the ancient Near East culture at the time of the judges. So that's just by way of setting it up, because I think if we don't understand what a redeemer is, we're a little bit lost as to why these people are doing these things, because it seems kind of weird. Um, but now that we know this, we can still look at this and say, it still seems kind of weird. So good news. We're going to jump into a scandalous story here. Uh, trusting in God's redeeming love. This is uh, verses 1 through 7. 
So if you're, if you're uh, I don't know, a, a, literar, a literary uh, analyzer, if you enjoy literature, if you enjoy story, uh, Ruth, is, Ruth is definitely one of those books for you. It's a narrative. It's an Old Testament narrative, and it unfolds itself this way. Instead of going line by line through verses 1 through 7, I just kind of want to give a view of what's happening here in all of these and all of these verses, and pull out a feeling, not so much the words, but the feeling behind everything, because sometimes literature is intended to draw out your feelings so that you understand that you are much like the people in the text, and that's exactly what these first verses are doing. So, chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Ruth, uh, they flow the exact same way. Uh, If you want to diagram it or whatever you want to do, they have the same structure within the narrative uh, that's there. Uh, So if you're a note taker here, I'll give you the basic structure. We start in chapters 2 and 3 with Naomi and Ruth making a plan. Go and glean in the field. Go and get a husband. That's what we get here. Uh, Ruth executes that plan. So there's a plan. Ruth then goes and executes that plan. Then some things happen, and Ruth returns to report to Naomi. And then Naomi interprets what this means. I mean, it's the same thing that's happening in both of these. It's, It's very similar. However, the content is different. In chapter 2, the plan to work, that's what their plan is, is executed and comes back with a report that there's a redeemer. And it might just be Boaz. In chapter 3, the plan to marry Boaz returns with a promise of redemption. So that's kind of how the, the trajectory of these things go. So last week, I told you, and I was overboard on it, and I'm going to be even more so uh, today, I told you not to imagine romance or passion in Ruth. Too. It's not. It's not there. That's not exactly what they're doing. You know, we want to. We want to tend towards this as a great love story, but it's definitely not there. Ruth doesn't even really know who Boaz is, or doesn't even make a connection to him, uh, in in regards to what he can do for her until Ruth or until Naomi interprets it. So she has, she has no idea what's going on uh, in this uh, in this situation. So while last week I said maybe uh, don't lean into the romance side of this, uh, this week I'm going to say go for it. Go for it. We should go there. You can can now go for it. We want to rightly divide the text, and now we go there. But before you go into romance, I kind of set you up there. I I want to clarify what that is. It's not really romance. It's love. So this has been, Ruth has been referred to oftentimes as like the, one of the greatest love stories in the Bible. Uh, yes, that's true, but it's not that kind of love. It's not this passionate, uh, feel-good kind of love. It's this chesed love of God, this steadfast, loyal, covenantal love of God. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't feelings. There, there, there are probably feelings here. There are probably something going on here. I'm not saying that just in general, God wants us to be robots who are fully committed to the, the plan, and that's what we're going to call love. That's not exactly love. He wants us to delight in our commitments to one another and to him, just as he delights in his commitment to us. That's the big thrust that's moving here. So is it one of the greatest love stories? Yes, but it's not that kind of love story. It's a love story about a far greater love than the feeling of the moment. So now, with all that said, I mean, pushing the passion and the romance off, I want to bring the passion side back into here because this is what these verses are doing. This is what this chapter is doing here. It does something pretty scandalous. Um, if, uh, if Mel Gibson made a movie of Ruth, I say Mel Gibson because he like always goes like crazy realistic, like appallingly realistic. Um, I would probably not have my kids come to the movie Ruth by Mel Gibson because chapter three is, uh, is rough. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty scandalous. It's pretty inappropriate. 
There's uh, one of my buddies and I, when we were in, uh, <laughs> I was really immature a long time ago. I've grown out of that now. Uh, in high school, we would, uh, we would say, don't ask my wife about that because the immaturity, I don't know. She just doesn't observe the immaturity. Don't go there. I'm trying to bail myself out now. I'm so immature. So I'm going there. Um, so in high school, uh, my friend and I would, uh, we'd fist pound each other in services uh, when, when the preacher said something that was like, a sexual innuendo. I mean, yeah, okay, I was in high school. Forgive me for this. Um, uh, so we like, you know, it was like, ah, he doesn't even know what he's saying, you know, fist pound or whatever. Ruth was never preached uh, when I was in high school, but if it was, like, it's just littered with that. Like, I mean, we would just be, it'd be bloody knuckles fist pounding here. There is so much innuendo going on in, uh, in Ruth 3. Now, there is this covenantal loyal love, but there's something odd. I mean, we get this, this gal, this, this widow, this young widow. She gets all dolled up, right? And she goes to meet this guy of great power who's kind of tipsy and goes, takes a, takes a nap behind the heap. There's no one else around. It's dark. It's midnight. She lays under his blanket a little bit. And then she says, hey, why don't you marry me? And he says, wait, don't go away right now. Just stick around till the morning or whatever. There are so many things popping here that, I mean, come on. It's written by real people. We're real people. Let's not be too pious. Like, there is innuendo here, and this is scandalous. Why do I go there? Not because I want you guys to fist pound. Don't do that. That was a horrible thing. I should have done that. I should have really thought through this before. I regret that. I'll edit it out when we put it online. So no high schoolers think that. No, that's, that's, that's dirty. Um, so why? Why this innuendo? Why all of this here? Why is this, this, this tension here? It's because, uh, not that we're supposed to go away and today be like, uh, hey, go to our Father's Day meal and be like, so about that. Did they? Was it? Like, what happened? Like, we don't have the answer. Like, we're not supposed to go there and do that. We're supposed to, while we're reading, this is, this is the nature of any kind of literature, and this is brilliant literature, it's drawing out a feeling of unease. We aren't, we aren't fully, we, we've been made aware of Boaz before the characters know, so we kind of know. We got the upper hand on him, right? But right here, we don't actually know. The characters have the upper hand on us. We're left in the dark, literally. It's midnight. We are left in the dark on this. And we're supposed to be wondering, like, what's going on here? How is this happening? And there is a feeling. Sometimes the text will tell you, do this, do that. Sometimes the text is designed to draw out a feeling that you are supposed to have. This is the feeling of trusting in God's loyal love. Because it's not always comfortable and we don't always have the answers. But this feeling that that the scandalous nature of this plot has, it draws out that uncomfortable nature of discerning God's will. Is this the solution? This seems shady. This doesn't seem like the way we should go. What's happening here? But we see Ruth understanding God's leading love, his, his, his chesed love. And we see her go into this situation. It is a scandalous situation. If she's found out, no one will assume the best. But she goes. Now, this is not prescriptive for us. This isn't re- we don't read this and say, oh, now I go do this. I'm going to go find a scandalous boyfriend or girlfriend, and we're going to go in there, and maybe God will redeem this. I have, a, I have a problem with drunkenness. So I'm going to go to the bar and hang out in a scandalous place where all this could go, fall apart and hope that God just shows up and redeems this like he did. It's not prescriptive like that. It's not telling us, go to scandalous places and hope that God pans out. No, Ruth is, and we're going to hear on the lips of Boaz, he interprets her motives here for us. So we, we definitely know that she's not doing that. Ruth, she understands God's love and his leading, and his providential care of her so much that she is willing to go to places that she would normally not do or go to. 
She is willing to have really upfront conversations with people of power that she normally wouldn't. I mean, Boaz is going to ask her a question, and she's going to get to the point. She doesn't, she doesn't do small talk. She is doing things because she understands deeply the Hesed love of God. She's not just going off on a whim, trying to find a husband. Boaz will call this out and applaud it. She's not going for this passion that she thinks Boaz is this knight in shining armor. She believes in something much deeper. And so she is willing to go out on a limb to discern, is this God's direction? Trusting in God's leading love. She shames me on how I don't trust God's leading love. I think oftentimes I preach on this and I speak about this and I read this and I'm stirred by this. And then when something gets uncomfortable, when I get a phone call this morning, a lady just called and asked, she said, uh, I'm in in an abusive situation. I'm at a shelter house and I need a couple of bucks to get into a new house because my abuser just found me. She just literally phone call this morning. I'm confronted with this. Do I really trust this? I could say, is this, is this lady spinning this one way or the other? If that's something that hits you and you want to you help with that, please help. This is one of the ways that we sense is God leading this woman to a path of redemption. We get all kinds of situations like this, and oftentimes I think it's too scandalous. I think it's, I think it's a scam, and I'm just going to walk away from it. She really convicts us here, Ruth does, of how much, when you, uh, how much you are called to when you believe that God is a God who leads us loyally and faithfully and bountifully and lovingly. So what does she do? She gets to work, seeking the Redeemer's love. Uh, Let's read here, verse 8. We haven't looked at the text for a while. Let's get back in it. Uh, Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, I love that word. It shows up twice here in Ruth, uh, in chapter 2. We know that Boaz is the Redeemer, the only one possibly that can redeem her. And behold, by chance, somehow, God providentially made a way. It's so sarcastic. And in here, now, behold, what do you know? These two are together, the one who needs redeemed and the one who can redeem. This is crazy. That's what, the, that's what the author is writing for us. And behold, a woman lay at his feet and he said, who are you? Now, that question is going to get asked to Ruth three times in the book of Ruth. Even in this chapter, she's going to be asked, who are you again? Boaz asks, who are you? And her response is so wonderful. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I am your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She knows who Boaz is. She doesn't have to ask him. That's why she's here. She says, spread your wings over me. Now, there are three connotations that spread your wings over me can can have. Uh, And I think all of them are here. So the first is this innuendo. Uh, There's some of that in there. We should be alarmed a bit and say, whoa, if I take this, you know, fist pound, that's there. It's drawing out that that, that sense of, is she really asking this or that? I think what she's really asking directly, maybe that's an implied, what she's directly asking is, marry me. It's this human marriage. In ancient Near uh, Near East, at this time, this idea of spreading your your wings over me. So at the, um, I've got this on, so that's that's great. That's helpful. Uh, They always wore cloaks. And the guys wore cloaks, and when they had a marriage ceremony, the guy would actually spread part of his cloak over the, uh, his, his new bride uh, to show that you are coming into my family. So the women would move into the guy's house, 
uh, and, and the whole family. Boys stay home or guys stay home and the ladies leave. So he's saying, you're coming in, you have my protection, you have, uh, you, and I will provide for you as well. So come, come here. She's literally asking, will you marry me? Like, so that, that is there. She's asking, will you marry me? Which is pretty scandalous, especially because he's like third in command and she is bottom of the barrel. So, I mean, it's not just a guy asking a gal and like, you know, you didn't, you didn't do the proposal, right? You know, it's not that. There's, there's, there's something else going on there. That's very much what's there. But the reason why they use this language and they show that, uh, they show it that way, is because it's a reflection of God's character, of his chesed love to us. This is the kind of love that God delights in. Ezekiel 16, 8. This is God speaking to his people. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and, uh, and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. There, there it is. That's where it comes from, this, this idea, this practice. In the marriage ceremony, there is a practice of repeating what God does for his people. This is what our marriage ceremonies should be like. Our wedding ceremonies should be like today is a reenactment of the love of God bringing in his bride to his family and loving her unconditionally, covenantally, forever. Is there passion in this? Yes. Ezekiel 16 says, uh, when I saw that you were for the age of love. You, I covered your nakedness. There is a delighting. There is a, there is a pleasure in being with his bride. And that imagery there that, that, that's for us there, not literal but figurative, is to highlight and draw out that passionate love, that pursuing love that God has for us. But it's not just a whim. It's not just a feeling. There's commitment. He says, I made a vow. I entered into a covenant. I just, I would love it if, if all pastors and anyone else that does a marriage, I would love it if that would be our premarital counseling. If like we would have like someone else to take care of just, here's your wedding planner, which we do have, but, but here are a couple details on what I'm going to say at your wedding. And then we spend all that time saying, this is marriage. Like this is what we're going into because you're not, you're not committed to each other to have a fantastic wedding, you're committed to each other to have this kind of loyal love. You're committed to have this kind of covenantal, forever, never-ending, enduring, uh, uh, loyal, loving, bountiful, leading love. Now, there are, other is- there are other issues that come up in marriage. There are other things we need to talk to. So I don't want to say, shame on you if you've broken this covenant. That's not what I'm going for here. I'm on the front end of this because they are on the front end of this. When we enter into marriage, when we enter into this idea of marriage, we need to be looking for the never-ending hall of love. And it's going to get tough. I think on one side, we always say, oh, this is going to be uh, just wonderful. It's going to be an amazing gift. And I think on the other side of marriage, oftentimes we, we too often gravitate towards, this is an amazing burden. It's work. It's work because that's what has said love is designed to be and marriage is supposed to draw that out. If, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if your marriage is difficult, welcome to the design of marriage. That's what God intended because it's to sanctify each other. We're supposed to bear with each other even through the difficult times. This is what's happening here in the covenantal love of God. This is how Ruth and Boaz are entering into this. 
not on a one night stand behind the heap. They're thinking of something bigger. And this is, and why do I say that? Because, because, uh, because Boaz is now going to name this in verse 10. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So let's read this slowly. What is he saying? He says, you have made this last kindness greater. So right here, the ESV woefully translates chesed of God. It's, it's the one of three times that the word is, is mentioned in this. He names it here uh, in the book of Ruth. He names it here. You have out chesedded yourself is what he says. I thought that you had this amazing chesed love. This undying chesed love. You've shown it to the dead. You've shown it to Naomi. But now you're doing something even greater than that. How is this chesed love? How is what she's doing chesed love? Because then he qualifies it right after that. He says, You've made this greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You've not gone after, after young men. The idiom there literally means you have not offered yourself. You've not just gone after passions and tried to find what you needed for today. You don't just want to find some comfort in this life right now, today, in the moment. You're not just looking for someone to marry right now just so that you can get back into the system and, uh, and, be, and be seen not as a, foreign, uh, a foreigner and a widow. The choice young men were probably the town's eligible bachelors. Ruth could have married, uh, one author says, Ruth could have married for love or money. Yeah, he says that right there. He says, whether poor, you're not going to marry someone poor unless you like love them, unless it's this passion. He says, so whether they had nothing and it was all passion, you didn't go after that. Or whether they were rich and you just wanted their money, you didn't go after that. Your said love goes beyond your desire for passion or money. It goes for your family. See, what's happening here is that the way that you are redeemed in this culture is that you marry into it. You change the legal law. When Ruth gets married to Boaz, if that's how it goes, or to the Redeemer, we'll leave it at that. We don't know quite yet, do we? Um, When she gets married, it's not her life that's going to become phenomenal. The lineage of Elimelech doesn't die. It is dead now unless someone redeems this. There's no way for Elimelech or his family or anyone in that family is done. Why does she go to this guy who is not rich, who is not young? She goes to him because she understands the said love of God. She is going to get married to bring back the name of Elimelech and his family. That's crazy. That's something huge. That is selfless. And that is what I would call a worthy woman in the vein of Proverbs 31. Verse 11, Boaz agrees. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for my fellow townsmen uh, no, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You are a worthy woman. Uh, this word here, uh, or this phrase here, worthy woman, it only shows up twice in, in, the, in, the, in, the entire, uh, in the entire Bible. It's important when things only show up a couple times, and especially with the connection that's here. Uh, the term that's here is eshet kyle. Uh, worthy woman. It shows up again at the very end of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 31 is an excellent woman, an excellent wife, a wonderful woman, a worthy woman. Somehow it's, it's translated that way. It is a literal, everything about it is a one-to-one. These two are connected. In the Hebrew Bible, in fact, 
uh, the book of Proverbs ends, and then the next book is Ruth. Because they understand that we're talking about wisdom and how is wisdom played out. And this woman wisdom is, 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 is the pinnacle of what a woman should be. She's not this submissive homemaker. That's not what it is. Don't ever use that. It's just abused so much. Proverbs 31 does not mean that. Uh, it's this woman wisdom who is, who is abiding deeply in the, uh, in the chesed love of God. She is moved to be industrious for her family. She wants a name for her family. She wants her family to be fed. She doesn't sleep much because she is motivated so much by love that she is self-sacrificing. Not to please her husband, not to please her uh, keeping up with the Joneses and all the other wives are doing this. She is dead set. It's like terrifying how passionate she is about the, the said love of God. And then you turn the page in the Hebrew Bible. Example, Ruth. She is that. Why does she get up and glean? Why does she go home late from gleaning? Why does she consistently put herself out there and cling to people? Because she's a wise woman. She's an exemplary woman. Now, if I want to give dating advice, I've given some marriage advice. My, my dating advice would be right here. That's the kind of woman men need to go for. A worthy woman who is so entrenched in the chesed love of God that it changes everything about their view. Of, of the other, of relationships, of their work, of their, of their understanding of, them life, of their lives. But she's not simply marrying this worthy woman. I love this part of it. We go back to chapter 2, and guys, be that worthy man. Boaz is that worthy man. He has this incredible reputation. And so maybe uh, many of us are, are, are not in that dating uh, season of life. So maybe we're over in the parenting side of life. What do we do? Raise those people up. That's what we should be doing. That's what our children's ministry should be doing. Our end goal should be worthy men and worthy women. Our society doesn't need more athletes and scholars. They don't need more uh, whatever it would be. They need worthy men and women, a la uh, Boaz and Ruth. That's the kind of character we need. We need to read deeply uh, who these people are and what motivates them so that we can put those as the end goals of of raising our children. Character is what we need to be instilling into our children so that we can see marriages, so that we can see uh, chesed love, so that we can see relationships, so that we can see an understanding of family that is so different than what we often see now. So that God is glorified and his said love is proclaimed in the earth. That is what we need to be doing. Ruth and Boaz give us an amazing example of that. So, Ruth understands this said love. She trusts in the love. She seeks the love. And now we're going to see that she is redeemed through God's leading love. So now verses 14 through 18. So she laid his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Okay, so what? why? <laughs> like, why is he sending some food home with her? Like, here you go. Here's, a, here's some Casey's pizza. That's... That was a cool night at the threshing floor. And what do we do here? What are we, what are we doing with this? Um, so, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a bit of a mystery there. I mean, honestly, I'm going to go with this is me, my personal interpretation. I don't really care. Um, but here, I had to be scholarly and not sound like I'm just making stuff up. Uh, there are people that interpret this um, 
to, to say, maybe this is a dowry. Hmm, it could be. You know, he's giving it to Naomi, and okay, that's cool. Um, maybe this is a, a cover-up. You know, maybe, maybe it was kind of scandalous, and he's like, hey, if you don't leave the threshing floor in the morning without some stuff that showed that you're, maybe we can just, like, create a lie and send you on that way, and people will be like, what's up? Hey, I've got some barley, you know, and so maybe that's it. Uh, I think that it goes a little bit beyond that. Um, I think uh, how I personally do this, and it's not definitive, it's just, I think that's the beauty of this literature, is we, we have freedom to interpret some of this stuff, um, is that, uh, is that he's, uh, Boaz is showing, uh, and maybe this, this act is foreshadowing uh, God's has said love to Naomi. Uh, it's been there. We've kind of gone away from her for a bit, but we're going to start to see this come back full force. She left, uh, and she was full, and she came back, and she was empty. Uh, that's what she says. She left. I mean, her, st- her, 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 her belly, whatever. She left, and she had kids. There was that, and now it's empty. She has no kids. Uh, her belly. She left, and she was full, and now, she, and, and now she's hungry. We're going to see that return. So she gets a bountiful amount of food. She already got some the night before, or the day before, and now she's getting some more. She is being filled up. Her hunger, her famine is going away. And it's foreshadowing because we can read ahead and we know where it's going. So also is a kid coming. Uh, It may not be her kid, but it's going to be credited as her kid to show that God's providential love has been there. And through Ruth and, and Boaz, God is speaking a huge way to his activity, even when he seems silent to Naomi. It's amazing. Naomi starts the book. Naomi ends the book. And we're starting to see a glimpse of God showing, yeah, I'm here. I didn't forget you. And so that'd be my suggestion. I mean, it's, 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 it's a light one there. But really what I, want, what, what I think is most edifying for us today here is verse 16. I really want to go into this. And this will kind of be one, uh, the last point that we, that we look at. I'm getting some water here because I'm about to preach it. Right Here we go. Um, verse 16. And she comes back, uh, when Ruth came back to her mother-in-law, she said, uh, Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? Okay, so uh, this is some help of another, uh, of another scholar here. I'll, I'll read the rest of the verse and then get to that. How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So she asked in verse 16, how did you fare, my daughter? The Hebrew in this literally asked the question, it's just two words, uh, who are you? Who are you? This is the same question that's been asked uh, by uh, Boaz asked the foreman. He says, who are you? Uh, Or who is this lady? And the foreman replies to Boaz, "Uh, she's a Moabite, she's a foreigner, uh, and she's a woman. So we're just identified on that level. She's far away from whatever uh, blessing we have here. And, and, and she's a widow. She's separated from, from society. She's a Moabite. She's separated from Israel. She's so very far away. That's how he identifies her. Uh, here, behind the heap, uh, Boaz you know, kind of uh, gets to it. And, uh, and he says, uh, who are you? That's verse 9. Who are you? And what she replies is, I'm Ruth. I'm a servant. Redeem me. Maybe if I, if I translate this another way, he says, I'm Ruth. I know that I need help. Please redeem me. Well, that's different. She's identifying herself as a person in need. And now here, it's so fantastic. Here, she says, who are you? And then what, is, what, is, what does Ruth say? She literally says, she told her all that the man had done for her. Okay, I'm going to translate that. She says, who are you? 
And Ruth says, I'm redeemed. I praise God. That's incredible. I'm redeemed. This man is going to redeem me. How did you fare, my daughter? I went to the Redeemer and I asked, can you redeem me? Do it. I need it. And he gave me blessings to come and give to you. And he's also going to redeem me. And then Naomi does the thing she always does as this wise old woman sage. She interprets this whole thing and she says, wait, daughter, until you learn that the matter turns out. This man will not rest until he settles the matter for you today. The beginning, what does Naomi say? She says, I must find rest for you. And now what she says, the last thing Naomi says in this chapter is, this man is going to find rest for you because he's not going to rest. Brothers and sisters, this is the journey of Christ. This is the journey of Christians. Hearing the plan of redemption, it's there. Go, ask the Redeemer. Trusting in the loving leading of the Redeemer. Asking for redemption. Hearing the promise, I will redeem you. Declaring, I am redeemed and being reminded, He is actively working for your redemption. That is incredible. That's all right here. I thought we were just having a weird story. This is beautiful. This is what we need. This is what we need to hear. If someone asks me, very honestly, what do you think of so-and-so? I will say, that person is a sinner in need of a savior, just like me. That's how we identify. If we ask ourselves that, that's a next step of trusting God's leading. Who are you? I am a sinner in need of God's Savior. That's why we do the confession every single week, because every single week we need to be reminded with those those challenging, strange words. You are not worthy of holiness without a Redeemer. Asking for redemption. Hearing that Christ is there with his arms wide open on the cross. I will redeem you. My blood is redeeming you. I am working for your redemption. And then finally, when we can, go to that moment of praise and say, I am redeemed. Who are you? I am redeemed. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time redemption here. Even when we have that initial, I don't know, conversion, that realization, that coming to faith. And it's that thing where God forgives our sins. We become his child. We're brought into the, 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 the inheritance, the blessing, the abundance that's there. Even when that's the case, we need to hear this every single day. I mean, this is a uh, Ruth 3 is a journey for us every single day. We wake up in need of a Savior. We need to hear. We need to read. We need to listen. We need to pray. We need to ask for that redemption. God, help me today. Display your love. Receive your love. Be patient with your love. Please lead me in where I need to go and be sensitive where I went to when I'm being led away from where my heart would take me and have the discipline to go where you lead and to refrain from where you say no. Ultimately, we hang that on Christ. Boaz is not the redeemer that we should celebrate. Uh, he's a foreshadowing, partial foreshadowing of Christ. I'm not even going to say he's, he is a type of Christ. Uh, he's a foreshadowing of who Christ is. Because we look at this, a kinsman redeemer intervenes on behalf of another who is not only in need, but unable to redeem himself. He shows us, he gives us the definition. Boaz is giving us the definition of redeemer and showing us we need that. Christ comes in and says, I will redeem you. This is something that should cause us great joy. This is something that should push us and compel us to trust in his leading love. Now, I don't doubt 
that you're here for a reason. I, I, I have to be cautious when reading this to say, I, I feel like God leads everyone who is here, here. There's a reason that you're here. I can't say everything works out for a reason. You know, I, don't, I don't know if that's actually a true thing. Sometimes things just happen. But God wants you to be connected with Christians. God wants you to be hearing his love for you. God wants you to be leaning into him and trusting him. And so if today is only a matter of hearing that, you should ask yourself, where am I at in this journey? And how do I move forward? It's not just an assessment to say, oh, yeah, I've heard. We're good. You need to move. This is real. And if this is real, this means something huge for your life. More than today. More than the feeling of the moment. This takes you into a, a, a huge world of relationships that are built on the chesed love of God. So, trust in God's leading love. I hope, every week I've said this, I hope that this becomes a, a reputation of ours here at this church. That people know us, that we are people who just, uh, just show, just live out naturally this has said love of God, that we just, we hear someone needs something and we respond. We hear, we sense that someone has deeper issues than just paying the bills and we need to talk with them more. And we go there. We take time for that. We cling to them. We have people that are kind of crummy in our, in our, in our, uh, in this room and we cling to them and say, we love you. We have struggles in our relationships and we say, Hey, this is rough, but let's go there. Let's be honest and know that it's built on love. This should be something that we are known for. This is something that should be so very normal for us. I truly believe that God's chesed love is the behavioral norm for God's people. Boaz and Ruth don't just sit there staring at each other saying, you're a worthy man, you're a worthy woman, you're amazing, we're the best, this is a fit, this is the bachelor par excellence, this is great, this is awesome. They're not saying that. What do they do? They say, the chesed love of God is real and it's in my heart. Let's go this way. Let's do it. It's just natural. Like they're, they're not doing anything crazy. She just goes home. And then he gets to work taking care of it. Let's just do this naturally and normally. Let's let this be something. But it can't be that until we get through the gateway of trusting in God's love. We'll never understand her delight in God's love and how he extends it to us if we never trust that it's real, if we never trust that it's good, if we never trust that he is able and willing. So my plea is trust in God's leading love. If this is something that's a struggle for you, uh, if this is something you have questions, yeah, but, I mean, you can identify with Orpah. What does Orpah do? She doesn't say God's able and willing. She says, things are terrible, so I'm just going to put God on the shelf for a while. I'm going to go back to what I know. Maybe you're there, too. I mean, that's a real place that you could be. You could be, hey, turn around and gone back to the ways of old, wherever you are. I'm always open for a conversation uh, on this. I know that this isn't the meat of our spiritual formation as Christians here. This, this extends throughout the week. This extends through our conversations with each other. We need to help each other, cling to each other, and, and move on in, in life with each other, spurring each other on to further maturity, raising up strong men and women who are worthy who are great examples of God's love, but we need to be that. And in order to be that, we need to identify with the said love of God. So trust in God's leading love. Let's pray.